0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates.
1: Price and coverage match, limited by state law. Okay, I know someone in this room must have an impression (laughs) of an awards acceptance speech. Does anyone have an impression? Do you mean an impression of an actual, real speech? Interpret how you will. If you were to get an award tomorrow, what would you say to the Academy? uh, I would like to thank God, (laughs) my family.
0: And my dermatologist. Mm, beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. The spiritual and the earthy. Yes. <laughs> in that order, I love it. Welcome to Critics at Large, a podcast from The New Yorker.
1: I'm Nomi Fry.
2: I'm Vincent Cunningham.
1: And I'm Alex Schwartz. Hello. Hey. Hi. Hi guys. What's up? Each week on this show, here's what's up. What's up is that each week on this show, <laughs> we make sense of what's happening in the culture That's what's right up. now. That's how what's we got up. here. <laughs> What is happening in the culture right now as we are in the hopefully final days of winter is the long, mm. extended, seemingly endless period of the year that is known as Oscar season. Mm. Da, da, da. Yeah, I mean, we're still well more than a week out from the awards themselves, and yet talk about the Oscars has been going on for what certainly feels like months. I think in actuality it is months. No, certainly months. Yeah, I mean, the drama, the snubs, the nonstop interviews, the mm-hmm. magazine covers, the photo shoots, the red carpets. Oh, yes, and you know, nonstop. So, as we all know, the art of the Oscars campaign is an elaborate and very expensive song and dance. And the more of these that I watch as the years go by, the more they really just directly make me think of a political campaign, you know, the the degree to which you are putting yourself forward to be someone's candidate, to, to be best, to be voted for. <laughs> of course, like, you know, the big difference is that we're not voting for these people, but we have this weird vantage point of watching all of this take place right. in – plain sight it's like, old, hands. it's like an old yeah. school
2: pre-68 co- political convention where you know like it's happening in a smoke-filled room yeah um i recently was in one of these rooms where this happens i watched an actor walk around a room just like shaking hands with people who are oscar voters and like watching it all play out mm. um just this long as you say campaign of ingratiation which in each of its steps maybe gets farther away from the art it's weird that yeah. is
1: yeah that is that is actually totally fascinating that you saw this with your own eyes because yeah we we all know it goes on but here here you are watching them actually meet the voters um and this is in fact exactly what we're going to talk about today on the show we are joining the fray we are buying in big time we are talking about the oscars <laughs> the candidates the races and the elaborate politics that define these awards the big question i have for us today is Given what we're discussing, this idea of the Oscars as a political process, perhaps more than it is an artistic one, why do we still care who wins and loses? What do we, the audience, the unvoting audience, get out of all of this? And what does it ultimately mean for the movies as art? So that is today on Critics at Large The Elaborate Politics of the Oscars Race. All right. So we're we're not going to go through this alone today. We're getting help from our colleague, our dear friend, and our resident Oscars expert, Michael Shulman. Um, You know, Michael literally wrote the book on the Oscars. Mm -hmm. It came out last year, and it's called Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. So we knew that we needed to consult Michael. I'm so happy to be here as like the Mr.
3: Roper to this three company.
0: (laughs) Yes, We couldn't be more delighted. you're Mr. Furley. I feel like Mr.
1: Roper was so grumpy. And you're a delight.
3: We'll see. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: so we have here the man himself, Michael Shulman. Michael, I think you may be the only one of us who's ever been to the Oscar ceremony. Will you be going this year? I will be. I
3: have my tux ready. I have my shoes polished. I'll be up in the balcony, which so, is where, so, where I
1: witnessed the slap from. Oh, my goodness. You witnessed the slap. I mean, this just raises the question, what is it like there? You know, we we all yeah, know what us. it's like to watch from our homes many thousands of miles away. What's going on in the room itself?
3: Well, in some ways, it's very similar. It's still very long, you know. There's still a kind of like fatigue that sets in the middle, and then you sort of ramp up again for the end. But in other ways, it's very surreal and different. Like, for instance, did you guys know that the Oscars are in a mall?
0: So it's a mall,
3: just a regular mall. It's a with mall, stores? Hollywood Boulevard, that has just been gussied up with curtains and a red carpet. But like, you know, if you look behind one of these little gold curtains, there's like. A Hot Topic or like Wait, a Sephora. Seriously? Yes. Oh, I did yeah. not know
0: this. That's fascinating. And so,
3: and even as you're walking out at the end, they're kind of like, de- they're they're sort of breaking down the, the red carpet. And you just realize it's so Hollywood. It's like smoke and mirrors, <laughs> you know. It's like an old, it's like an old Western where there's a saloon that actually, if you poke it with your finger, it'll <laughs> fall down flat.
1: Wow. What is shaping up to be the big narrative around this year's awards? You know, are there specific movies or races that you guys have been paying attention to in the run-up?
2: For me, it's all about Best Picture. I don't know if that's the the rage for you, Michael, but it's like I saw I, partially. I think because of this podcast, I've seen more of the Best Picture movies me than too. I've maybe seen in my whole adult life. Like I've me just too. seen I've seen all of them except for Oppenheimer and Past Lives, which I same. I want to repair. So you've seen all
1: of them except for the front runner, Oppenheimer. You,
2: fair enough. Fair enough. We're in a
1: race against the Nazis, and I know what it means. If the Nazis have a bomb. I am assuming that Oppenheimer is going to walk away with best picture. I mean, I just think all signs are pointing to that, especially based on the run-up Sequence of awards. Um, but, you know, one of the big narratives this year was – or in the, in the Oscars calendar year beginning last year after the end of the 2023 <laughs> Oscars was Barbenheimer. And so the snub, the big snub of Greta Gerwig as director and Margot Robbie as best actress, neither of them nominated in those categories, has been one big narrative around the nominations. I mean, Michael, what do you make of that snub? Is that – should we all be paying as much attention to it as we are
3: well, the morning of the Oscar nominations, I immediately knew that that was going to be the big story of the day, the the quote-unquote Barbie snubs. Um, you know, what interests me is that the Oscars have sort of had this struggle for relevance over the past um, five years or so, and it seems like as you know, especially years where the the frontrunners are a bit more obscure, like Nomadland, people complain. We haven't seen the movies. What's happened. Um, I think the role of movies in in mainstream culture generally is somewhat diminished uh, compared to, say, the you know, the days of Titanic. And yet this year, there was this gigantic phenomenon of these two critically acclaimed blockbusters opening on the same day. and they are both nominated. Uh, for Best Picture, and they're both nominated in a lot of categories. So, to me, the discourse around the Barbie nominations was so huge because so many more people have seen that movie than had seen, you know, my my personal one that I am upset about, which is May-December, yeah. not yes. getting more nominations, you know? Yeah. The Barbie conversations are so larger because the Barbie audience is so much larger. And, um, you know, one thing I'm curious about is does that translate into – bigger ratings into more a more central role for the Oscars in general because that's in a way what the Academy has been hoping for all these years you know they expanded the best picture uh category from five movies to ten after the Dark Knight didn't get nominated hoping that some 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 Batman would slip in (laughs) um now they have that's finally happened there's a there are two gigantic cultural phenomenon kind of movies that are in this race
1: Yeah, totally. Um, And I, too, am sad about May, December. We're talking about Todd Haynes' movie starring um, Julianne Moore as a woman who is married to the much younger man she began an affair, question mark, with when he was a seventh grader, and Natalie Portman as the actress portraying her in a TV movie. How do you choose your roles? I want to find a character that's difficult to, on the surface, understand. Were they born or were they made? Like, that movie is so much about acting and what acting is that it felt very striking to me that it was um, totally snubbed. Like, do you guys have personal movies that you're gunning for in this race? I loved Poor Things, the Yorgos
0: Lanthimos movie in which Willem Dafoe plays a scientist who creates this kind of, you know, in Frankenstein-like fashion, creates this kind of figure of a childlike woman played by Emma Stone. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Bella, this is Mr. McCandles. Hello, Bella. Oh. 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 Bud. Oh. Blood.
2: Bud. Uh, blood.
0: Blood. Uh, you know, it, it just seemed to me to be... A movie that had a kind of, like, imagination on its side in a way that didn't seem rote to me, which I often feel best picture contenders feel like uh, it's kind of like you know what to expect in in some ways. And this felt like an outlier to me.
2: I was a big Poor Things fan as well. Um, I also loved—like, so if Poor Things is my fun movie— a very not fun movie that I really liked and has been sort of controversial or polarizing, I guess I should say, is uh, Zone of Interest. Mm -hmm. I like um, that too. Which is about Rudolf Haas, the commandant of Auschwitz, and his wife, Hedwig. (laughs) A chilling look at the quotidian life, almost, of this family. Uh, the wife is played by Sandra Huller, who's also in uh, she's another in movie. great movie from last year, Anatomy of a Fall. And yeah. she's nominated but, for
1: Anatomy of a Fall. Yeah. As amazing. Best, in Best Actress category. Okay, yeah. I have not yet seen The Zone of Interest. Okay. I just, I don't want us to forget about Killers of the Flower Moon. Great movie, too. Great movie. Yeah. Great movie. That's, Marty. You know, M- Marty. I would love to see Marty, you know, get rewarded for Killers of the Flower Moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: Michael, is there a, a feeling, because you, you've written about, you wrote about this in your book. Um, the how early on in the history of the Oscars comes this like sort of as you, as you call dubious tradition of the lifetime achievement Oscar, you know that somebody gets uh, awarded for a lousy movie, but it's you know because everybody likes this person.
3: Well, the person who's running that campaign this year is Annette Bening, who's nominated for NIAID. Mm-hmm. and I've actually seen Netflix using the the slogan "A Career Worth." Celebrating or Fair something. Enough. A career oh, worth honoring. Well, if she does win that
2: Oscar, I will say that it will definitely be for that reason. Because although she isn't good in that movie, that movie is not good.
3: Yeah, I mean, she's. I love Annette Bening. She's famously lost twice to Hillary Swank. So it's right, like there is right, this right. feeling of unfinished business. And you're right, yeah. it does date... Back, I would argue as far back as year two in 1930 when the silent movie star Mary Pickford won for her first talkie that everyone hated because she was playing it like to to the rafters. Um, She had been like a a founding mother of the Academy, the most famous woman in the world at certain points. And nobody really thought that this was her best movie, but she got the Oscar for it. And this year, I think Benning's in that spot. Okay,
1: so as we're hearing, Michael has an absolute wealth of historical Oscars knowledge. And we are going to come back to the current year of Oscars races. We will not be leaving this room without talking about Bradley Cooper's campaign for maestro. Um, (laughs) But we must first attend to some important business, which is that I understand, Michael, that you have some trivia for us.
3: I certainly do. Oh, my goodness.
1: Oh, my goodness. Are we ready? Trivia time. Fire away. Oh, my God. This makes me nervous.
3: Okay, (laughs) I have some questions <gasps> for you guys. I've okay. tried not to make them, like, too stumpy, but... Okay, okay. Are they ju-
0: multiple choice? Some What's... of them are,
3: yes. Okay. Okay. Let's okay. just dive right in. I feel like... The right. the off. You know what I feel like? I feel like Marissa Tomei in her Oscar-winning role in My Cousin Vinny, where she has to prove <laughs> on the stand that she's a car expert by talking about positive traction or whatever. Yes. Anyway, here we go. <laughs> Question number one. Okay. Which are the three movies that won the big five, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay. Three movies. Mm-hmm.
1: And you're not giving us choices now.
3: I will give you hints okay, if you need Okay, okay,
1: okay. So I'm just going to talk through some of my thought process. The first thing that immediately popped to my mind was Titanic. Me too, yeah. Leo did not win for Titanic. Leo wow. was famously
3: not even nominated. Not even
1: nominated for Titanic. Mm-hmm. So wow. it couldn't have been Titanic. Paint me like one of your snubbed girls. Oh. <laughs> 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 okay, someone, someone throw another option at you. We got to get at least one.
3: Saving Private Ryan part of this? <gasps> oh. Saving Private Ryan very famously did, did not win not Best Picture. Oh, so wait, so is it
1: Shakespeare in Love? Perhaps. No, because Shakespeare and Love did not win Best Director. Mm-hmm. That that was by some others. Yeah, Spielberg Citizen got it Kane?
3: Citizen Kane, another famous <gasps> loser of almost everything it was nominated for, except screenplay.
1: Okay, Michael, we're gonna need some hints. One hint that I would like to have is just what era to be looking at. Yeah.
3: Okay. Clue number one will okay. give you an era. When Clark Gable got undressed in this movie and wasn't wearing an undershirt, supposedly Sales of undershirts dropped 75%. Gone with the Wind? Gone with the Wind actually is not the answer because Clark Gable lost Best Actor. Because
0: he wore an undershirt? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> My jaw has dropped at this hint.
3: <laughs> and he vowed never again to make that <laughs> no, um. But he did win for... It Happened One Night? Yes! ding oh, yay! I not expect to get to New York at the rate you're going. I, but that's none
1: of your business.
2: You're on a budget from now on.
3: Frank Capra's screwball comedy masterpiece that happened one night won in won all the award, all the top awards in 1935.
1: Who boy. All right.
2: There's two
3: more. There's two more. Let's okay. do Are you ready we for got, your second yes. more clue? Sense. We need a second This clip. is a movie quote. Okay. I must be crazy to be in a loony bin like this.
1: Okay. One floor of the Cuckoo's mask. Yeah. Yes, yes. yes. Correct.
3: <laughs> you want a date with him? <laughs> <No. laughs>
2: Jesus, I must be crazy to be in a lonely event like this. Data. Uh, well, it'll have
0: to be a fast
2: date, I'll tell you that.
3: The classic New Hollywood Milos Forman uh, movie about Jack Nicholson in a mental institution.
0: Based on the Ken
1: Casey novel.
3: It won all the top awards in 1976. Okay. So there is one more. So we
1: got the 30s, we got the 70s. I think we're looking at the 90s. Oh, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <gasps> okay, okay. Mm-hmm. So big winners. We already said it's not Titanic. <laughs> it's not Saving Private Ryan. Um, the nineties.
2: For some reason, when the nineties, like Con Air came, out. It's like, that's not it. That's not <laughs> it's
1: it. That's not it. It. It's it's just just the truth. It's this this would <laughs> never be
3: the truth. Um, okay, we're gonna need that
1: hint. Okay, yeah. another
3: quote. A nice Chianti.
1: <gasps> oh, of
0: yeah. Of course, Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the, the, movie. the Lambs. The
2: movie, nineteen ninety-one. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver. With
3: some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Uh, Anthony Hopkins won, even though he was only in it for like 15 minutes. Jodie Foster won. Best Actress. Great movie, honestly. Wow. Okay, are you ready for the next question? I feel warmed up. (sighs) All right. This is multiple choice.
1: I'm only getting more confident the worse we do. (laughs) I just (laughs) want everyone to know that. Got it. (laughs) All right.
3: In the 1930s, the Academy got a little playful with the statuettes. Which of the following honorary Oscars is not real? A, the ventriloquist Edgar Bergen got a special wooden Oscar with a movable mouth for his creation of the top-hatted dummy Charlie McCarthy. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. B, at six years old, Shirley Temple received the first-ever Juvenile Award, which was half the size of the regular Oscar. (laughs) C, for his groundbreaking film, Modern Times, Charlie Chaplin won a special Oscar with a tiny little mustache and a hat. Or wow. D, to honor Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Walt Disney was presented with one standard-sized statuette and seven little dwarf Oscars. Which of those did I make up?
1: God, this is amazing. Um, my my immediate gut instinct is that you made up the Seven Dwarfs, which means that it has to be real.
2: I was, I was thinking – Tiny little mustache was yeah, really, really mustache. jumped
1: out at me. Okay. I don't know. I'm going to no, go man. with you, Vincent. Tiny I don't, know. Little mustache. I
3: don't know. <gasps> Vincent and Alex, you are correct. It's the tiny little mustache for Charlie Chaplin. I made that up. All the others are real. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Tiny little
2: mustache was too much Shulman for me. <laughs> like, not, I, I know that tone.
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Alex, you might have to recuse yourself from this one because we kind of discussed it Recently on an email chain, weirdly enough. Okay. Danny DeVito has been nominated for only one Academy Award, and it wasn't for acting. It was for producing a Best Picture-nominated film. Yes. Which movie was it? I I am
1: recusing. I do know the answer to this. I I
0: just read that he, like, produced, like, ugh, but what was it?
3: Okay. Okay. when he was
2: nominated, did not win.
3: Is that what you said? Yes. Okay. Nominated for Best Picture, he did not win. What does Danny DeVito's taste like? Produ- uh, pr- that will not help you no, answer no, this question. Very, won't <laughs> no, no, it's very –
0: Vincent, it's very surprising. I read this and It could, it could and help if you go in the opposite God. direction. There
3: are like, hints. Clue number one. This movie won Best Actress for the woman who played the title character. Mm-hmm. The title character.
1: God. Okay, we need another clue. Yeah.
3: Clue number two, kind of the giveaway. It's about a real person who was a paralegal and environmental –
1: Erin Yes, Aaron Brockovich. Uh. Ah the Steven
0: Soderbergh movie about a paralegal who fought the big corporations uh, for contaminating the water in her small town. Yes.
3: And Julia Roberts starring
0: Julia Roberts. One best actress. $20 million is more money than these people have ever dreamed of.
1: These people don't dream about being rich. They dream about being able to watch their kids swim in a pool without worrying that they'll have to have a hysterectomy at the age of 20. By the way, we had that water brought in special for you folks.
2: Produced by, Danny DeVito. <laughs> Produced
3: by Danny DeVito. Believe it or not. Wow. Yeah. Um, okay. Final question. Yes. Okay. Drum roll, please. There are three examples in Oscar history of two actors winning awards for playing the same character in different movies. What are the three characters?
1: So two actors winning the same award for playing. Sorry, can you repeat the question? Two. <laughs>
3: two it's two. Two different actors in two different movies who won playing the same character. And this happened. This two has different happened. times. Three
1: different times. Three There's different Three times. answers.
3: There's three characters who've been
1: two different movies. Are they real characters? Oh, I know one of them. Is it Capone? Yeah. I know one of them. Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, right? I knew you'd say that, and that is wrong. <gasps> oh but it's, my God! It's because close. because because <laughs> there was Kate Blanchett as a young Elizabeth, and there was Judi Dench as old Elizabeth. Yes, the same year. The but, same year. But
3: uh, Kate Blanchett didn't win. <gasps> she lost to Gwyneth Paltrow in Shakespeare in Love. <gasps> oh my lord. Okay, um, we hints. have hints. Time we for hints. hints. Okay, these are all musical hints. Fantastic. I'm going to play you uh, a, a clip.
1: Oh, oh, Godfather The Godfather. Part two. Wait, so it's Marlon the same Brando, actor. yeah, Marlon Brando, and 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 Robert De Niro as as Vito Corleone. Corleone. Yes. yes, Marlon
3: Brando and Robert De Niro both won for playing Vito Corleone in The Godfather Parts 1 and 2. All right, there's two more of these.
1: Okay, two more of these. Okay. Okay.
3: Character, same character, different actors, different movies, different years. Different years.
1: Oh, my goodness. I think we need another sound clip.
2: Is there another sound clip? Okay,
3: sound clip number two and go. Batman. Mm Mm-hmm, but that's not who won. Heath Ledger is
0: Joker. Yeah, eh and uh, uh, and now uh, what's his face in Joaquin?
3: Yes. Uh, Heath Ledger won for playing the Joker in The Dark Knight and then Joaquin Phoenix won for playing the Joker in Joker. Okay. Um, The last musical hint and yes. the last character played by two different people who both won the Oscar for playing that character. Let's
1: hear it. Oh, Anita from West Side Story. Yes, who was played by... Who was played by Cheetah Rivera. No,
3: on Broadway, yes, oh, but who won um, the Oscar for
1: it? Yeah, it's... uh. Oh.
3: Who's the...
2: She just won. She just... She's... she's... Pretty. Um, what is her name? Um, oh my
1: no, God. no, but in the, the original,
2: no, there's the more recent one, <laughs> yes, but uh-huh. not
1: very. Oh, yeah, okay. uh, uh, Rachel Glaser? no, no. uh, uh, uh <laughs> no, what's,
3: I mean, like, we can do them what's in order, we don't to do them in order, see, we have to say Rachel? the older one first. <laughs> <Save me. laughs> it's Rita Moreno for oh, the Rita original. Oh, my and God. This is the one I was trying to figure out. A triple threat,
2: I can just see your face right now, a like, Broadway
3: star, yeah. A,
2: Alexandra Ari... like Schwartz, <laughs> Ari are, are
3: Ariana, yes, Debose, yes. Retake
1: Ari- uh. uh. the whole thing. <laughs> 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 Retake the whole thing. for everyone in this room. <laughs>
3: Rita Moreno and Ariana Debose both won for playing Anita in West Side Story: The Original and the Remake. Oh Friend my- of the pod. We were, we're not. We're not. We're not, we're not <laughs> all right, you guys. Did great. We're not Congratulations. Trib- Congratulations. We're not trivia people. No, we didn't. <laughs> no, we
2: were not good. Listen,
1: it was fine. <laughs> Could the listeners have done any better, listeners?
0: I mean, yeah, probably. probably, definitely. I We've probably. heard from our listeners now, and we know for a fact that they We're that. sorry, <laughs> listeners. We're sorry.
1: In a minute, we are going to redeem ourselves with simulating <laughs> discussion of Bradley Cooper's Maestro campaign. Critics at large from the New Yorker. will be right back. So one thing I've noticed about Oscar season these days, I I don't know if it's because it's changed or because I have, you know, grown up in years and in wisdom and I see more of what the world is made of now. But it's just how much is required of anyone who's up for an award during this campaigning process, like all the things they have to do. Um, You know, have you guys noticed some of this, the intense campaigning? Does it look different than it has in the past?
0: Yeah. I mean, I've noticed it just seems to me— Somehow more than usual this year, the run up to the Oscars with all the other award shows has seemed absolutely chock full. Just like every weekend there seemed to be like another award show or more than one even that is kind of leading up to the big kahuna of the Oscars in, in you know, March 10th. And I saw something maybe page six or daily mail or one of those websites where it said something like people are expressing worry about Margot Robbie because <laughs> she has been campaigning so hard on so many red carpets for Barbie. Yeah. Um, that, you know, people are just like, she's drooping. It's too much. You know, it's like, and there was a picture of her sort of looking list, listless list on the red carpet, just looking at it as you know, a kind of disinterested observer. I'm like, Jesus Christ! This woman has to wear a different gown, literally, you know, five times a week—from a luncheon to an awards show yeah. to like an honorary commemoration of something or other.
3: It's an incredible it's, hardship. It is, but
0: it's, it's <laughs> all the dresses. My <laughs> Lord. No, no, but it is. I mean, it's you know, to
2: the Oscar, you know.
0: Certainly, there's worse things, but it does seem absolutely exhausting and very much labor-heavy,
1: though the labor seems glamorous, at least from the outside. I personally am less concerned with how much labor these actors, et cetera, have to put into it, and more with the kind of strange idea—or maybe it's not a strange idea, but that the movie needs to be about more than the movie. At least this is something that, like Michael, I got from your book, you know, reading about Harvey Weinstein, kind of the oor-campaigner and the creator of a lot of these modern-day campaigns— creating these ideas that the movies themselves are about something so much bigger. Like, you know, basically sending this message that you're voting for an idea when you're voting for an actor or for a best picture. I mean, is that still some of what is going on today?
3: Oh, absolutely. You know, I heard you guys sort of earlier comparing Oscar campaigning to political campaigning, and I think there are certain real parallels – there's kind of two sides to it. One is the messaging, you know, which in in politics is like the stump speech in in the Oscar race, it's like Annette Benning talking about like her career or, you know, or Netflix, you know, putting out there a career we're celebrating. You know, uh Bradley Cooper talking about the many months and years he spent learning how to conduct, stuff like that. And then there's the ground game, which, you know, in the presidential race, it's you know, shaking hands, kissing babies, you know, eating corn off a stick at the Iowa State Fair. Mm-hmm. In in Oscar World, it's, you know, appearing at these luncheons and these panels and meeting voters, not only in the academy, but in all the guilds and you know all the and the the golden globes and all the various voting bodies who vote in the sort of primaries and caucuses leading up to the Oscars which is like the election and uh, Weinstein you know this is what he used to be notorious for is his very aggressive oscar campaigning he's rightly notorious for something much worse now but Weinstein in the 90s was running Miramax with his brother Bob Weinstein and You know, he really saw himself as a kind of underdog. Uh, You know, he was running this indie movie company, which was eventually bought by Disney, but it was an indie movie company. They were releasing these sort of edgy or arty movies, you know, like The Crying Game and Mm -hmm. Clerks and Pulp Fiction and, you know, uh, The English Patient Um, and – he's talked about it like guerrilla warfare. Like, I don't have the budget to sort of, you know, and the connections. So we are just going to blanket everyone with publicity, whether it's, you know, these four-year consideration ads that run in the trade magazines or appearances. And they would also do the ground game. So they would have people from Miramax call up voters to make sure, like, have you seen this movie? What did you think of the movie? They would find pockets of Academy voters. Like, if there were, like, five Academy voters living in Santa Fe, they'd set up a screening of a a the Mary Max movie in a movie theater and, yeah. you know, showed them a good time. Every vote counts. Exactly. Every vote counts. And no one had really done it to that extent.
1: Live from the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion
0: in Los Angeles, California, the 71st Annual Academy Awards.
3: And it climaxed in a major way in 1999. There are five
2: nominated films for Best Picture. They are
0: Elizabeth, Allison Owen,
3: his Harris movie Shakespeare in, love, Shakespeare in
0: Love David
2: won
3: Garfett, over uh David Spielberg Delosio. Saving Private Ryan, which was a DreamWorks movie.
2: Saving Private Ryan. Steven Spielberg, Ian Bryce,
3: Mark. Gordon. This was a campaign that is remembered as the ugliest best picture fight of all time. What really made it ugly is that DreamWorks heard through the grapevine that Weinstein was bad-mouthing Saving Private Ryan, essentially telling journalists to write that the only good part of the movie were were the the first 25 minutes, the storming of the beach at Normandy, famous battle sequence, and that the rest of the movie was just a kind of standard World War II movie. Um, This got back to DreamWorks, which they went ballistic. They started, you know, fighting back by placing more ads and re-releasing Saving Private Ryan in theaters where it hadn't been for months. And they actually wound up outspending Shakespeare in Love. And the Oscar goes to... But when Shakespeare in Love won... It was just like this ton of bricks that hit uh, the Hollywood establishment. Shakespeare in love.
2: David <laughs> Carpenter, Donna Gelati, Harvey Weinstein, Edward Twick, and Mark
3: Norman. And what happened was an arms race, because the next year... Uh, DreamWorks had American Beauty and they felt, okay, mm-hmm. we're going to take that that Weinstein playbook and double it. And they spent double the ads. They had Kevin Spacey make appearances at like film festivals and shake hands and they won. It worked. And the next year they did the same for Gladiator and won. And so it was, you know, everyone in Hollywood f- suddenly felt like they had to hire like a, a squadron of campaign strategists and spend a ton of money. And that is how we got the sort of bloated uh, cottage industry of Oscar campaigning is that we had have now. And it got to the point where the Academy had to start making making rules and, and, and reining it in, kind of like campaign finance law or something.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, right. The other huge similarity is just the amount of money that's spent. I mean, I was yeah. looking at figures for what Netflix has been spending and some notable occasions. The money spent on promotion of these movies in Oscar season is more than the budget of the movies themselves. Yeah. But like, let's talk about Bradley Cooper and Maestro for a second, just to put a concrete face on it. To my mind, Bradley Cooper... Is kind of the oor campaigner in some ways of our moment, or maybe I shouldn't just keep throwing oor around. I feel <laughs> like I've free with my oors today. I feel, <laughs> um, but he is—he is—he's—he kind of looks like this picture. He's presenting this picture of real right. artistic commitment and seriousness. Like Michael, you were mentioning the number of years—six—I can just say off the top of my we head all know because that he's spent we've all heard studying so many times. This sense of you know. Just
2: total commitment, total
1: commitment, the picture of an artist. You know, of course, he has not been he's not been rewarded with a best director nomination. He is up for best actor. Um, but something seems like, you know, a little tragic, perhaps in the life of Bradley Cooper about not getting that best director. My real question is, like, is it just about the prestige? Does it open specific doors for him that he doesn't have already in terms of budget? Like, why am I seeing the same ad so many times on my Instagram <laughs> with Bradley Cooper saying, Summer does still sing in B. There you go. (laughs) Beautiful. I was like, Alex, I know
0: you have a maestro impression to share with us. My maestro
1: impression is based purely on the first second of the maestro ad that has been plastered (laughs) all over social media for exactly this purpose. And that's it.
0: If Summer doesn't sing in you, then nothing sings in you. And if nothing sings in you, then you can not make music.
3: We should have known when you walked in here with a prosthetic nose on <laughs> that this was coming.
1: Yeah, and but, a and, and a pack full of cigarettes.
2: Exactly. One of my favorite parts of Michael's book, though, is a quote um, basically talking about this where it's like the very abstract nature of merit, let's say, in art is the foundation of this. Mania, I think someone in your in your book says, you know, this town is built on a rock-solid foundation of insecurity.
3: Yes, yes. Yeah. So I, I asked, uh, actually, the woman who was running the Saving Private Ryan campaign for DreamWorks, Terry Press, she's a, a veteran marketing executive, I asked her, you know, it doesn't always pay off in money to win an Oscar. Why do people want it? And she had this <laughs> line I loved so much, and it's in the introduction of the book, which was ego and bragging rights it's a town built on a rock solid foundation of insecurity and i think that is a big part of it you know hollywood is a place where everyone is constantly trying to maintain or reaffirm their status their taste you know it's a, it's a it's a town built on like sort of abstract notions of like who's good, who's talented, who has who has good taste for movies if you're a, if you're a movie executive, who is talented as an actor if you're an actor, who's bankable. And the Oscars are a way for them I think of confirming that. It is strange because
2: you often see though that like I'm thinking about Lupita Nyong'o for example. There there are to- there are so many examples of actors who are nominated or win the award but who then kind of recede from view. Like, there's no real guarantee. But I I think another part of it is, like, canon making, right? Like, there's a way to say, if I win this, there's a better chance that I, you know, go down in history or something like that. There's a
3: posterity move there as well, right? Yeah, uh, but there's also something that's casually known as the Oscar curse, where it can work against you. Um, You know, for instance, when Anne Hathaway won for Les Miserables uh, 10 or so years ago, you know, she— was like Bradley Cooper, seen as wanting it too bad, being it's too earnest. It's very Bradley.
0: It's very And Bradley, then yeah. by
3: the time she won, like, yes, she won, but there was also this backlash against her, which we've now sort of come full circle on, and now we love Everybody Anne, loves Hathaway, Anne Hathaway. Now, yeah. But I feel like Bradley Cooper has sort of committed that sin of appearing to want it too bad, and even making this movie, maybe, because he just wanted to win an Oscar for playing an American genius and directing himself in the role. So, fairly or not, and I think that's really debatable, um, He's just been cast as, like, the try-hard Oscar campaigner. Yeah,
0: it's like the curse of the theater kid, right? It's a very delicate dance of campaigning hard, doing whatever it takes, Mm -hmm. going to all of these luncheons and dinners and glad-handing. But it seems, from what you're saying, Michael, and, you know, thinking about Bradley Cooper with Maestro and Anne Hathaway, there needs to be at least some sort of pretense That you're not doing it (laughs) at the same time. (laughs) Right, right. right. That you're not kind of like laying it on too thick and doing – you know, it's like doing an obvious accent or something. Like it's it's kind of too – That's why
3: we're hearing Bradley Cooper talk so much about his absolute love of conducting and his love of Leonard Bernstein. It's all about this passion project that he had to do because, of course, he's not going to come say – you know, I wanted to win the Oscar I didn't win for a Star is Born. But for whatever reason, the assumption that that is what's going on hasn't attached itself to like Annette Benning, who is revealing yeah. that she's like, you know, swam eight hours a day to train to be Diana Nyad. Um, you right. know, th- and there are different versions <laughs> of this too. I mean, my favorite Oscar campaign of this year is that anatomy of a fall is like campaigning with the dog Messi from the movie <laughs> the dog oh, is really well, great the dog the is everywhere it's so beautiful exactly but and now you're thinking about how much you love this dog and you know it's a great movie but we're not thinking about like, like this is a movie about a woman who may or may not have pushed her husband out the window but right it's the- not
1: a movie about a cute dog So if we accept that the Oscars are as much politics as anything else, and I think we are all accepting this premise at this point, why do we still care who wins? Stick around.
0: I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.
1: All right, the game is rigged. It's rigged. (laughs) Why do we still care? I have a couple of theories. Theory Well, theory one is we care because we like the movies. We really like them. <laughs> Aren't we hardwired to see the things that we love and connect to, to, to want to see them gain recognition and be liked by other people? I mean, for me, it was all about Titanic in 1998 because I had gone as a 10-year-old to see Titanic in the fall of 1997, discovered what the movies could do was just <laughs> ripped down to my very foundations and built back up again over the course of those three hours. I mean, yes. we're speaking in the past well, now. Was this mostly like Leo-centric for you? No, it was or... the whole thing. It was the whole, the whole thing. thing. It was the dramatic sweep. It was about, mm-hmm. you know, the water, let's be real. and The magic it, of cinema. It was about the magic of cinema. It was about the emotional and physical devastation that, that went on. A
2: sad violinist.
1: So, yeah, so, so when I watched— as still a 10-year-old, the Oscars in 1998 and saw Titanic sweep and, you know, saw the I'm King of World speech, I reacted very differently than perhaps I would react now. But I just felt, yes, my taste is getting affirmed. This thing is getting recognition. Absolutely love that. You know, the other part of it, I would say, is... This idea of the um, the acceptance speech where the person lays the way for other people. I mean, sometimes it's very moving and very genuine, like Halle Berry winning mm-hmm. for being the first black actress to win Best Actress Award and saying, I've opened a door and now other people are going to be able to come through. There is that moment of projecting yourself into that person on stage. You know, but w- what about for you guys? Like, yeah. you know, also we're assuming we do still care. Some some years, yeah. let's be honest, we don't. Um, but But if you do, why?
2: I don't want to totally... Americanize this, but I do think though that in a society that lacks a like natural aristocracy, we are still very much suckers for
0: Absolutely. the glamour of
2: merit, the aristocracy of um, taste and achievement and success in a way that even though we know that there is a mechanism behind these things, there, a glow does attach itself to people who Absolutely. win things, and I think that is a deeply national characteristic, um, and it is one that I. More of my intellectual life than I would, you know, like is devoted to wrestling against that tendency.
0: Vincent, I couldn't agree more. I mean, just the I, – I just think even apart from the question of who is going to win, I think just the whole like hoopla around it. You know, the sense of occasion, the sense of pageantry. You know, Michael and myself ended up in like a Barbie event, do you yes, remember that? we went to a, Michael, we went to a, yeah. a campaign
3: event for Barbie. This Michael in, took this me this as his plus
0: one in New York. Mm-hmm. It was do, at the do, pe- do tell us what it was It was like. at the Peninsula Hotel.
3: Ooh, story time.
0: And uh, the thing itself wasn't very glamorous. It looked like a convention kind of. But just the association of it with – the stars, you know, the celebrity. There's Margot Robbie. Oh, my God. Uh, I heard that Ryan couldn't make it because he was sick. You know, like there, it was It was sort of like, but, but you know, America for her, you know, just like
3: yeah.
0: uh, Greta and Noah. You know, it was like there's something seductive about it. Wouldn't you say, Michael? Yeah, I mean,
3: what I would add to that and to what Vincent was saying is that the Oscars are a game, you know? There's winners and losers. And as much as we love seeing glamorous, famous, rich, uh, beautiful people out there looking great and showing up at events, there's this part of the night itself yes. where someone's going to win. A lot more people are going to lose. We get to watch their face in the little box as they force a smile. I would also add to what you were saying, Alex, about our love of the movies. You know, there is a kind of central fallacy at the heart of any award show like this, which is that art can't be ranked. There is no such thing as best picture or best actress or best makeup. Like, it's it's all completely subjective. And I think that art isn't supposed to be ranked like a sports team, but it is supposed to be discussed. And I think that the Oscars give us all a platform to discuss Mm. what we liked and what we thought was best and what we thought wasn't so good. And, a part of that is talking about the snubs. I mean, this whole conversation about, you know, whether uh, Greta Gerwig and Margot Roby were snubbed for Barbie is, uh, uh, you know, millions of people asserting their taste and having the opportunity to say, no, we liked them in this. And, you know, we don't understand. We thought they we, – we think this. And so in a way, it's like it's this, it's this months-long opportunity for us to all, like, have a conversation about movies that we may not have otherwise.
1: Yeah, I think that's very true. It's a kind of, you know, flint for us to strike our matches off of. Um and some of the most satisfying years are the years like the Green Book years, the years when you want to protest or you are annoyed or the crash years, you know. Like oh, wow. Yeah. I mean Vincent's rolling his eyes right now, Big, years later.
2: Horrible. Still bad.
1: Yeah. And, Still and, bad after all and, these years. And perhaps those years have their place as well. Um, You know, it's all—I'm feeling like I'm reaching this place that I don't really want to reach of congratulation of the Oscars because, of course, like, there's something very strong in me of wanting to just roll my eyes at the Oscars even as I, as you say, Michael, like, want to see what's going on and and have it prompt this discussion— Like, I feel like there's always this narrative every single year that the Oscars are too long, which they are. That narrative is correct. And that viewership is down, which it usually is. And yet this year we had Barbenheimer. Like, the movies were back. At this point last year and the year before, I think there was a real sense of doom and gloom. And suddenly we've had this huge burst of optimism. Do you think that that will be reflected differently in the Oscars? Should it be reflected in a certain way in the Oscars? Will it make any difference to the ceremony itself?
3: That I mean, that's one of my main questions. Is sort of does the does the existence of Barbenheimer change the the you know the the excitement level at the Oscars? But then you never know what's going to happen. I didn't know that the year of the slap was going to be the year of the slap until I saw it with my own eyes. Right. <laughs> and then we were talking about that. And I think the spontaneity of the show is built in because you never know who's going to win, who's going to be up there giving the speech with the big emotion. But then there are these crazy other things that happen, like the slap or the streaker night of nineteen seventy four, or you know the envelope mix up with. Light in La La Land. Um, I mean, here's the thing. I think it's fine to roll your eyes at the Oscars. The Oscars are ridiculous. That is one of the things I love about them. They're absurd, right. <laughs> they're over the top, and they're nuts. Um, I don't think anyone should take them too seriously. On the other hand, you know, would we be talking about a movie like The Zone of Interest as much in mainstream? sort of journalism and online chatter and everything else, would that kind of movie get that kind of exposure if it was not for Oscar season? The Oscars are like this blunt instrument that is sort of forcing the industry to consider quality and not just box office. And it comes around every year and it plays on that sense of like, I want it, I want it, I want it, give me give me the, the gold thing. Um, and that is ultimately, I think, an incentive for people to make movies that
1: are good. All right. So what are we all hoping for with this year's Oscar ceremony? Because I will just do a little spoiler alert and let you know that us three critics, we three critics, I should say, will be live blogging the ceremony, which may make it the first ceremony I've watched attentively in some time. So what are we hoping to see? You know, I'm, I'd am i love a little – just a little scandal, a little drama. Me too.
0: Who's hosting? Jimmy Kimmel again.
2: OK. Um, um. I kind of like Kimmel in the in the Billy Crystal role because he's the only person who manages to still take people down a peg without generating, like, discourse about meanness in comedy or whatever. Right. I think he's actually very good at it. So I hope, I'm hoping for a good opening monologue from him. And I also hope to see some innovations in just, like, filming, you know, to, to get away from the stage shot, audience shot, stage shot, audience shot rhythm. Because I like to feel like I'm at a party. Yeah. That's my favorite sort of mode to take this in at.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think much like you, Alex, I would like a bit of a scandal, a bit of drama, something unexpected. Maybe not something as violent as the slap, which, by the way, I was peeing in the bathroom when it happened. Oh, no. Well, I'm glad at least and I heard back. screams. No, I heard I heard screams from my friends in this the is living a police room. Police report. Oh my god! And I was screams. like, I was in "No, the I mean, because I it was shocking. Screams. It was a shocking moment." And I was like, <laughs> "What's happening?" Like I was literally like on the commode, oh. and and then I oh, burst your out. timing
1: terrible. Like a
0: bat out of hell, <laughs> and they were like, "You won't believe what just happened." So I don't know if I need that
1: level of drama. Maybe you would take like a Jennifer Lawrence uh, tripping on her dress on the way up the yeah, stairs. Level. not
0: that I wish this for uh, on I anyone. I thought that was but, pretty cute. But maybe know,
3: Sandra Huller will push someone out a window. <gasps> <Ooh. laughs> I know. You know what?
0: The, the, I think I think my sweet spot is like Angelina Jolie, like tongue kissing her brother. Oh, remember that? That was yeah.
1: pretty serious. That's <laughs> pretty I mean, serious. Uh, it, that's like, you know, it's Was between, that 90s? That's very 90s. That's yeah, very 90s. it was a girl interrupted. With a vial think could, of someone's yeah. blood around her yeah. neck. I don't mean, think that like. could happen today, although I wish it could. But. I mean,
0: yeah, but that's between <laughs> them and God. It doesn't point to anything, you know, like the slap had so many kind of like the political levels that are, I feel like, more serious and, I need something that is a little disturbing, mm-hmm. but is ultimately, you know, doesn't say anything horrible about the culture. <laughs> yes, yes. Speaking right. of snubs,
2: I hope somebody apologizes to Penelope Cruz, who was absolutely robbed because she should have been nominated for her performance in uh, Ferrari? Ferrari. She mm. was awesome in that movie.
3: Justice for Penelope. Penelope. <laughs>
1: This has been Critics at Large. If you want to hear more of the New Yorker's coverage on the Oscars, you can find it at newyorker.com. You can also tune in to the New Yorker Radio Hour, where our colleague Richard Brody recently gave his take on what film should win the big awards. And finally, if you want to join Critics at Large live on Oscars night, you can! The three of us are going to be live blogging the awards ceremony on the New Yorker's website. Guys, are, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to wait. it. I can't yeah.
2: like just return to our roots as bloggers.
1: Well, yes. I did it
2: last I did
0: it last year with Doreen St. Felix. Uh, and, you know, I mean, you've, you haven't lived until you've been blogging at the World Trade Center at midnight.
2: Yeah. I think I'm going to bring some champagne to the office. We had let's, champagne last year, actually. Oh, really? Oh, yeah.
3: let's do it. Okay, wait. And I'll be uh, taking over the New Yorkers' Instagram for oh, the no. night as well. Oh, so. how fun. A lot of takeovers yeah. are
1: happening in Beautiful. short, and we hope that you will tune in for that. Our senior producer on Critics at Large is Rhiannon Corby. And Alex Barish is our consulting editor. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Conde Nas head of global audio is Chris Bannon. Alexis Quadrado composed our theme music. And we had engineering help today from James Yost with mixing by Mike Kutchman. You can find every episode of Critics at Large at NewYorker.com slash critics. And you can email us at themail at NewYorker.com with the subject line critics. See you next Thursday.